0: Well, as Christians, we should certainly marvel at God's handiwork in creation, right? We should just be regularly reminded of His power and His beauty and His intricacy that we see reflected in the creation itself. Also, I believe God is good in giving us physical realities that point to greater spiritual realities, physical realities that point to greater spiritual realities. For example, think about our physical hunger. Our physical hunger. Now, I know that's probably a big mistake I'm making to bring that topic up right before lunch, but I'm going to go ahead with it anyway. But when we are physically hungry, God has designed our bodies, right, to need nourishment. And so we have this regular cycle that tells us we are hungry. And so we feed our bodies. Then our bodies grow hungry again. And so we feed them. On and on this cycle goes. And it is natural for us to be hungry, right? If we're not hungry, then something is wrong with us, like we've gotten sick and it suppresses our appetite. Our physical hunger is a pointer to another type of hunger. Spiritually, we are made to hunger for God. We are made to hunger for God. Everyone is hungry. Do you realize that? Every human being is hungry. And God wants us to find our satisfaction in Him. And if we are not spiritually hungry, then something, just like our physical hunger, something is wrong. Either it is sin that suppresses our spiritual hunger. Or it is other things that have taken God's place. What the Bible calls idols. In our culture, we have what some people call the three Ps. There is pleasure that we chase after. Or possessions. Or performance. We think that those things will bring us a a satisfaction to our soul. But they cannot and they do not satisfy our spiritual hunger. Only God can do that. So in this light, Jesus comes along and he makes the bold claim, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. So Jesus points to our physical hunger and He points to bread, which is the kind of the universal food that people look to to provide nourishment and says that He is the bread of life. Meaning that He can satisfy our spiritual hunger. Friend, as you sit here today, you are looking to something to provide satisfaction to you spiritually, to satisfy that hunger. What is it? Is it one of those peas that I mentioned earlier? Or is it Jesus, the bread of life? I hope by the end of this message you can see and learn about this bread of life who makes such a difference in our lives. Are you are you going to focus with me for the next 30 minutes or so about our spiritual hunger and how we can find it rightly satisfied in Jesus Christ, the most important thing that we could ever look to in our lives? We can find it satisfied in the bread of life and stop searching in vain for all these things that really won't satisfy. Friends, we're in the midst of a series on the Gospel of John, and I just want to recap that last week was important. Last week, Jesus claimed, do you remember that? That He is, I am. That is the personal name of God in the Old Testament. Jesus' statement was a clear testimony of His deity. And so today, we come to the first of seven I am statements, where Jesus says, I am such and such. And we're going to explore this in these following seven weeks. These seven I am statements are obviously similar to Jesus saying, I am, but they're different in that Jesus then asserts something else about Him. For example, He says, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, and so on. And these different I am statements are fascinating because each of them points to a different aspect of our salvation and how Jesus comes along and He shows the fullness and the greatness and the completeness of His Savior, of being the Savior to us, and this great salvation that we enjoy. So as you stay and listen to each of these different I Am statements, you're going to be blessed by seeing in a very rich and practical way how great Jesus is and also how great this salvation is that we enjoy as a result of Him. So today again, we're going to look at this first I Am statement. I am the bread of life. So please join with me with, in John chapter 6, page 691, John chapter 6. Now in the context here, just before we dive into the specific part of the passage, Jesus had just miraculously fed the multitudes. With five loaves and two fish, He fed fifteen to 25,000 people. That was one of the seven signs that Jesus, or that John mentions. And so when the crowd saw Jesus' incredible power, they wanted to make Him king, right? They saw that He could do these things, and they said, hey, this guy could help us get rid of the Romans, but Jesus wanted no part of that, and so He dismissed the crowds. He sent away His disciples over on the water to the other side of the lake, and then Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, Meanwhile, the disciples get caught in this sudden storm. Jesus walks on the water, stills the storm, and then brings them safely to shore. The next day, part of that same crowd, of that fifteen to 25,000, they find Jesus. And at first glance, that seems great, right? I mean, they're happy to see Jesus. But Jesus, He knows their heart. And He knows what they're really after, is food. To them, man, it's breakfast time. What can you scramble up for us here now? That's what they're thinking. They wanted food in their bellies, not Jesus in their hearts. So we're going to see what Jesus has to say about all that. So pick up with me, if you will, verse 30. By the way, this passage takes place in a synagogue You don't know that until you get to verse 59, the very last verse. But all of this takes place, this interaction with Jesus in the crowd here, uh, in a synagogue. So the passage begins with Jesus' bold declaration in verses 30 30 through 35. 30 through 35. Let me find it myself. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So they mentioned how their ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. What was that? Well, after the Lord delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he brought them into the wilderness. And remember, there were probably several million of them. It's going to be a while before they got to the Promised Land. Obviously, they needed something to eat while they're out in the wilderness. And so the Lord provided bread from them. In Exodus 16, God talked about He would provide bread from heaven. And the Israelites called it manna. Exodus 16.31 says, It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So each day, God sent down manna. Now if you recall, the Israelites didn't actually enter the promised land because of their rebellion. And so they stayed in the wilderness for 40 years. But despite their rebellion, the Lord sent manna on them for 40 years. And once they entered the promised land, the Lord stopped the manna since now the land could provide for them. So the manna was an incredible display of God's love and care and power for His people. So then going back to chapter 6 of John, the people bring up the manna because they wanted a sign like Moses when he gave the sign of this bread coming down. It showed that he was a prophet. And so they were saying, okay, can you do something else for us, Jesus, so that we might believe in you? Now, that should strike you as remarkable that they're asking for another sign after Jesus has already fed fifteen to 25,000 people with a few little scraps of food. But it shows their hard-heartedness. And Jesus reminds them that it was ultimately not even Moses that did this. It was God who sent down the bread from heaven. And now God has sent the true bread from heaven. He claims that He is the bread of life. So in the Old Testament, God sent down this bread to satisfy their, their physical hunger. Now the true bread has come from heaven. And notice quite a bit, you will see that phrase, from heaven, emphasizing that Jesus is eternal. He is God. That is His origin. He came to earth, right? Right? He's not just a man. He came from heaven and he took on humanity and he came here to satisfy our spiritual hunger. This is what his mission was about. This is what was foretold of him in the Old Testament. A wonderful little reference you might want to tuck away in your memory thinking about Jesus and this connection here. Isaiah 55, beautiful verse. It it predicts the new covenant. And it also talks about how the coming Messiah is going to feed His people. It says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David." So Isaiah is saying, look, there's going to be a new covenant one day. And this Messiah is going to be the one to satisfy your souls. So after boldly stating that he is the bread of life, Jesus then changes topics, shifts focus, and focuses on the grace of God and our salvation. The grace of God and our salvation. Now, this is a digression that Jesus makes here. But boy, it is some digression that really is a powerful statement about God's grace in our lives. And I want us to read together verses 36 to 40. But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent Me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given Me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So Jesus, He pinpoints that they don't believe in Him. They're they're following Jesus around, but He knows their hearts. They want food. They might think of Him as a prophet, but they don't still understand that He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. They're not looking for Him to satisfy their spiritual hunger. And friends, that's the issue. And that leads to Jesus talking about God's grace and our salvation. And I want to point out two things that Jesus emphasizes here that are really important for followers of Christ to understand about our salvation first we are a gift we are a gift from the father to jesus we are a gift from the father to jesus by this jesus means that we were chosen for salvation scripture calls this election god shows us before time ever began not because of anything special about you or that even he saw you would choose him one day, but simply because he loved you and decided to give you to Jesus as a gift. They got real quiet all of a sudden. To give you as a gift to Jesus. This isn't the only place you see this in John. We read that we are a gift from the Father to Jesus. In John 10.29, Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Did you see that? We're given by the Father to the Son. John 17, 1 to 2, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given to him. And the rest of Jesus' prayer in John 17, two verses talk about how we are given by God to Jesus. Friend, you are a gift. From the Father to the Son. Now if you're like me, you surely don't feel like much of a gift, do you? I mean, I must have been on the clearance rack over here, the damaged goods, two ninety nine or something like that, at Walmart. Bet that's not how God sees us. And it's important as Christians that we see ourselves the way God sees us, not the way we see ourselves. We are a gift before the foundation of the world, where the Father says, I'm giving them to the Son. That's a paradigm shifter, isn't it, for you? It's powerful. And as verse 37 points out, You will come to the Father, meaning God calls you and He will stir you to believe. Sometimes theologians call this, quote, effectual calling, meaning God will call you and you will come to salvation. Now, you still must believe. That doesn't mean you're a robot. You still must respond to the gospel and place your faith in Christ. But it is God's grace that ensures this reality. We are a gift from the Father to the Son. So that's one important aspect Jesus brings out here. Second, we cannot lose our salvation. There's no return policy on this gift. Aren't you glad about that? Because you would have blown it a long time ago, and I would have too. But as Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He says, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It was interesting. Last week we saw Jesus really emphasize the need to persevere. In other words, if you're truly a disciple, you will persevere in the faith. We have a responsibility to persevere. And Scripture emphasizes that. But scripture, Scripture also is emphatic that it is God's will to keep you to the end. It is the Father's will for Jesus to lose none of the gift He's been given. They will be raised on the last day. If that is not eternal security, I don't know what is. Jesus will not lose what has been given to Him. In a sense, you're, you're just out of the equation. Jesus will persevere you It is ultimately His faithfulness, not yours. Though you have to be faithful, He will guarantee that. God's saving purposes will never fail. So friends, God's grace initiates our salvation and it sustains our salvation from beginning to end, from election to resurrection. It's all God's grace. It's powerful, isn't it? So how does the, 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 the crowd, how do they respond? They're just thinking about what kind of jelly am I getting breakfast at this point, I think. <laughs> but this is what they say. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, who fought, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? It's incredible that they don't even ask further about Jesus' words. I mean, He's just giving these incredible, powerful words, and they don't even listen because they're fixated on the fact that, oh wait, we know His parents, so He couldn't have come down from heaven. They don't even ask anything. And it's sad, though, that nothing has changed, I think, to the present day. Do you ever meet people sometimes that think, Man, I've got Christianity debunked because I have this one objection that I think throws the whole thing out the window. And then you start asking them some questions and they've actually never read the Bible, but they read something on a website somewhere and now they've debunked Christianity. But it just shows how hard hearts can be. Then Jesus then teaches again about salvation. Follow with me in verses 43 to 46. 46. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he was from God. He has seen the Father. So after telling them not to grumble, this is kind of brings up the echoes of the wilderness generation and how they were always grumbling. Now they're again out in the Wilderness, so to speak, grumbling again. He emphasizes God's grace when it comes to our salvation. We just saw how Jesus taught that all that God gives to him will come to salvation. Now on the flip side of things, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Did you read that in verse 44? You don't come unless the Father draws him. We don't seek God. He seeks us. We can't do it ourselves. We need God to open our hearts to believe. And the section closes there with that wonderful promise, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. Well, what is eternal life? We've gone through this before, but I just want to make sure everyone knows. John seventeen three. Jesus defines it for us, so I'm going to go with that. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So friends, eternal life is a present possession that when the believer comes to know Jesus, you have eternal life, and that it is also something that waits for you on the last day when Jesus raises his people from the dead, they will enjoy for the rest of eternity. It's a quantity of life and a quality of life that you know God now and you will live forever with him. So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, in essence, what he's really saying is, I'm the bread of what? Eternal life. And I will give it to you if you believe in me. Now, in our passage, I just want to make kind of a footnote here, my own little digression, not nearly as good as Jesus's. But in this passage, I just want to point out, we've seen God's election emphasized, and we've seen our responsibility to to respond to that universal call of salvation, we've seen that both God draws people to salvation and that we are supposed to believe in salvation. Friends, Scripture teaches both. It teaches both, not one or the other. It's a mystery, but Scripture teaches both. You say, well, explain that to me, pastor. And I will say, I cannot explain it to you. What I can give you is an illustration that doesn't explain it, because again, no one can, but I love this illustration. It's a helpful illustration. It goes back to, I believe, a a famous pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia a while back. And he would often tell this illustration to emphasize the mysterious dynamic between God's election and our responsibility to believe. He said... Imagine a large cross in your mind. Large enough with a door that you could walk through it. On one side of the cross over the door it reads Revelation 22:17. Whosoever will may come. So that door is wide open for anyone. The call is open for anyone who wants to believe in Jesus. No one is excluded. Man, woman, young, old. Anyone can place their faith in Christ. So then once you walk through that door and look on the other side of the door, you see another Scripture verse written over top of that door. And this verse is Ephesians 1.4 that says, Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Do You get it? Scripture teaches both truths don't deny them. Don't try to explain it all away either. But just realize that Scripture teaches both. The offer is available to all. And so the church should be out there sharing to all. And when we choose Christ, it is our genuine choice. It is not a robotic function. But also God shows us before time began and opens our hearts to believe in Him. Now, in verse 48 and following, Jesus returns to this theme of the bread of life. And in this section, he really emphasizes the living bread, the living bread, ten times. You know, when you're reading your Bible and you see a word repeated a lot, that's a cue for us to say this is important, right? We should pay attention to that. So ten times you see the word life, live, or living, okay? So he is the living bread. And also, you see, emphasized that we should eat it. Ten times, again, you see this idea of eating the bread. So this whole last section is really about eating the living bread. Let's see what Jesus is talking about here. He said in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So that wilderness generation back in the Old Testament, they ate that manna, but they died. It only provided a temporary physical source of nourishment. But Jesus is saying, look, that the living bread, it provides a permanent spiritual source of nourishment. And then in verse 51, he he mentions how eating, we're, we're supposed to eat his flesh, And that rankled up the crowd when they heard that. They said in verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The crowd thinks that Jesus is speaking literally. But obviously He's not. It was forbidden in the Old Testament to eat blood, especially human blood. Jesus is not trying to contradict the Old Testament. He came, as He says in Matthew 5.17, to fulfill the law, not to disobey the law. So He has other things in mind when he's talking in this way. Let's see what he says in this final exhortation in verse 53 and following. So Jesus said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, "'you have no life in you. "'Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, "'and I will raise him up on the last day. "'For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink.'" at Capernaum. So Jesus teaches that we're to eat His flesh and drink His blood. And He stresses this positively and negatively. If you do so, you have eternal life. If you don't do so, you don't have eternal life. And again, Jesus is not speaking literally, but symbolically about belief in Him. That is what His point is. This whole notion of eating and drinking is about our belief in Him. In fact, Look in your Bible, notice the exact parallel between verse 47 and verse 54. It says in verse 47: Whoever believes has eternal life. Do you see that? Try that one more time. Whoever believes has eternal life. Do you see that? Verse 47. That's how you have eternal life. If you believe in him. Verse 54: whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Is Jesus giving two different ways to have eternal life? I don't think so. He's using that language symbolically. And His point is, is that we are to internalize what He did for us on the cross. Think about it. When you are eating physical food, and you're looking at that plate on the table, does it do you any good if it just stays on the plate? Doesn't it have to become part of who you are that you have to internalize it? That's what he's getting at. That's what he's getting at. We must take in his sacrifice, we must internalize it. The cross must be something that we see that we need in our lives, that we are guilty of sin and we need forgiveness. That Jesus is who He claimed to be and His death wasn't just something for the world, but it was something for me. That Jesus isn't just something in front of me that I've learned about and I've discussed and even I've studied, but it has something become something that is part of my life. That I've embraced this as my Savior. Do you see the difference? And here's great news, friends. You can do that today. Maybe you're sitting and you're thinking, you know what, I I have learned a lot about Jesus, but I don't think I've ever had him become part of my life. I don't think I've ever humbled myself and got on the ground. You don't have to get on the ground, but just humbled yourself and bow your knee and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I want that to happen in my life. Jesus says, whoever believes has eternal life. That's how you have eternal life. And the offer is open to anyone who would like to receive it today. Isn't that good news? What a Savior. Well, let me close by asking another question, this time for those who have trusted Jesus for salvation. Be honest with yourself. Are you fully satisfied with the bread of life? I read something this past week that really hit me where someone said something to the effect of you have as much of God as you want. You realize that? You have as much of God as you want. You're as close to God as you really would like to be. Because we know he's there and he's there with wide open arms ready to draw us closer and closer. But We are as close to God as we want to be. And if we would only hunger for more of Him, He would fill us. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think we can know Christ, but sometimes not be truly satisfied in Him because there are things in our lives that we are looking to to provide that satisfaction. Rather than the bread of life. So let me just give us two steps to take. two steps to take. First, remove the spiritual junk food in our lives. With our physical hunger, right? Like guess I said earlier, our bodies are designed to need nourishment. But our hunger can be quenched, can it, by junk food? are things that aren't very good for us, right? I mean, if you're really hungry and you go eat some cotton candy, that might taste pretty good for a little bit, but does it really do much for your hunger? I'm glad everybody said no. I I thought somebody would say yes, but everybody said no. Good, thank you for working with me. And if we do this over and over, it affects you, right? I mean, if your whole life, your body's saying, feed me, feed me, feed me something nutritious and all you give it is junk, it affects you, doesn't it? As they say, you are what you eat. So likewise, we're made to hunger for God. He wants us to find satisfaction in Him. And if we're not really hungry for Him, something is wrong. There's something that is suppressing that hunger that keeps Him at at arm's length. There's sin in our lives. You know, I don't want to give that over. I don't trust it. Somehow I can give it to God. Or I'm ashamed and I want to cling on to that that and that sinful nature in my life. Or we're clinging on to something else. Like I said earlier, idols. Things that we look to that we say, you know what? if I have fill-in-the-blank, then I'll be satisfied. Money, relationship, possessions, career, whatever it might be, if you fill-in-the-blank, then I'll be finally, my spirit, my soul will be satisfied. That's an idol, friend. It's spiritual junk food. And you will always have just a little bit missing or more in your relationship to God. You might know Him. You might... Be a Christian, but you're not satisfied the way God wants you to be satisfied. And then secondly, we need to remove the spiritual junk food, but we also need to remind ourselves about God and our salvation. When you see something delicious, it can make you hungry, right? I mean, think about, man, a nice salad right about now. Filled with a lot of good things in there, or a pizza with awesome toppings on there. Ooh, a great grinder. Man, doesn't that sound good? Fresh, right out of the oven, melts in your mouth. You're getting hungry, aren't you? (laughs) Better stop. Well, God has done the same thing with our spiritual condition. The more we see of God, the more we want of Him. And how do we do that? Well, friends, primarily, that's why we need the Scriptures. We need the Scriptures to meet God in Scripture. And notice that just reading Scripture doesn't necessarily satisfy you. It's not the act of reading, but it is re- encountering God through that reading. The Scripture is kind of like a fork in a sense that brings the food into your soul. But just reading the Scripture is, is about as satisfying sometimes as chewing on a fork if you're not really meeting God. Jeremiah 15.6 says, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Psalm 119.103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Then in Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, we need a regular, if not daily, sustenance, reminder of the greatness of God to make our hearts hunger for Him. That's why it's not just a duty to go through Scripture reading. It is a way to draw near to Him and find satisfaction in Him. But also, in addition to Scripture, Jesus Himself, you know what He also does? He gives us the Lord's Supper to remind us of His sacrifice for us. Now, I don't think that this passage here, John 6, speaks directly about the Lord's Supper. But it does foreshadow, I think, what would later be instituted by Jesus. So let's remind ourselves, what is that Lord's Supper about that we're going to celebrate here in a few moments? What does it symbolize? Well, friends, the bread and the cup, they they point to the same reality. Jesus' sacrifice, but they emphasize different things. That bread symbolizes substitutionary, the substitutionary death of Jesus. Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to others. His words and his actions, they symbolize that his body would be broken on behalf of others. There's a substitution taking place. And you think about, okay, and then he's fulfilling all that was spoken about in the Old Testament about a Passover lamb, right? who would be substituted for the nation of Israel. The animal sacrifices that developed that were substituted for the nation of Israel. And then lo and behold, Isaiah comes along in Isaiah 53, and He speaks about a Messiah who would die in substitution for the sins of His people. So Jesus realizes that He fulfills all these things. Knows that He fulfills these things. And so when He died on the cross, He suffered on our behalf. So the bread symbolizes Jesus' substitutionary death. The death that you and I should have died, He paid for us. Then the cup symbolizes the new covenant. Matthew 26, 27-8, Jesus said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, when God established a covenant with Israel, He sealed it with blood blood of animal sacrifices. And we know how the Old Testament Israelites didn't really follow that covenant too well. And so the Lord promised one day there would be a new covenant that would come around. An even greater covenant. And Jesus is now claiming to be the fulfillment of that promise. A new covenant was going to be established and the cup symbolized that. And Jesus' blood was poured out. Part of that covenant was for the forgiveness of sins to bring cleansing and atonement for sins. That was practiced in the Old Testament, but it pointed to a greater final sacrifice that Jesus would bring for His people to liberate them from the bondage of sin and to reconcile them to God. So friends, when we come to the Lord's Supper, it encapsulates and gives us a visual reminder of what Jesus has done for us and should make us hungry and thankful for what Jesus has done. His bread, the body, symbolized there being broken on our behalf. You cannot save yourself. You need a Savior. The bread symbolizes that. And that cup symbolizes that precious new covenant and the glorious promises that are found there, some of which we spoke about here today, how we are a love gift from the Father to the Son and how we cannot lose our salvation and we will enjoy eternal life, not only now, but for the rest of eternity. Are you hungry? Spiritually hungry? We should be so thankful for what the Lord has done for us. Today we're going to celebrate this Lord's (laughs) Supper. Jesus has given us this ordinance for us to to remember and to practice. It is for those who've placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And for us as Christians, before we take of this Lord's Supper, we're to reflect on our spiritual condition, to go before the Lord and to make sure that our hearts are right with Him, to not take this sacrifice lightly, but to take it with grateful and clean hearts, to confess our sins and then express our love and devotion to our great Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before You this morning so blessed with this remarkable passage You've given us. And Lord, in light of what we've seen here about the bread of life, Lord, we confess to You the spiritual junk in our lives, that junk food And Lord, I pray that You would rise to the surface the things that we see in our hearts and our minds where we cling to and we chase after and we think, oh, if we could only have this or some sin that is holding back us from experience, the fullness of joy in You. Before we take of this precious sacrifice, this precious symbol, we confess that to You, God. And we thank you that you are always there to cleanse us and wash us. And Lord, we pray that you would make us hungry for you. Make us hungry, God, we pray. We don't want to be satisfied with things that don't truly satisfy. We want you. Lord, we come to you today and pray that you would renew that hunger in our hearts the changes that we need to make, that we would do, and that, Lord, by your grace, you would give us a greater hunger and thirst to know you in all the fullness that that entails. We ask this in Jesus' name. And All God's people said, amen. amen.